0: Welcome to another Throwback Thursday edition of YDHTY. As I mentioned in the last episode for the whole month of July, we're going to be digging into the vault for some old episodes that laid the groundwork for a lot of the ideas we've been exploring in depth over the last couple months. And some of the ideas we're going to be exploring as we enter the next season in August. Now, this episode, is another one with the data monk so so far you've had three data monk episodes in a row he's always bitching about how he hasn't been on well data monk you got a three-peat here and it's never a bad thing at all now we recorded this back in 2021 right as bitcoin was beginning to see its second bull run and also at a time when meme stocks such as AMC and GameStop were actually enabling retail investors to threaten the very existence of powerful New York hedge funds. Uh, This is the first episode where we discuss the idea that the last 20 years of economic activity have really just been a series of wealth transfers, starting with the dot-com boom, when retail investors lost wealth, uh, when that bubble collapsed to the financial crisis when homeowners lost a lot of their wealth due to the collapse of the mortgage market and moving on to today, where due to a large amount of money printing whatever wealth the majority of people have left is being chipped away by having to spend more on the basic things they need to survive and this was also at a time when i just finished reading ray dalio's changing world order something you should definitely check out if you haven't already it maps out how reserve currencies rise and fall and positions the dollar in that mix. And so I really started thinking about what does a post dollar world look like and who is the heir apparent? And that's where the data monk and I start discussing the concept of some global universal cryptocurrency. It was back when I was a bit more of a Bitcoin fanboy than I am now. Uh, my opinions changed a bit, not because of the price, but for reasons I'm not going to disclose in the interest of getting onto the episode. We'd love to know your thoughts. So as always, feel free to pop me an email at heydan, that's H-E-Y-D-A-N at Y-D-H-T-Y or you can just click the link in the show notes, fill out the form, and you'll get my weekly newsletter. Hope you enjoy it. Talk next week. <laughs> Full of sociopolitical issues,
1: one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell
0: with your host, Dan Sally. Sally, 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 Sally. Oh, hello there, and welcome to episode 79 of You Don't Have to Yell. It is your resident bod boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here, reminding you that notes on this episode and more resources can be found on the website ydhty.com. Be sure to check it out now. As I've lamented before... One of the biggest challenges to doing a podcast released in anything other than real time is that whatever you're planning to talk about in 2020 and now 2021 will be overshadowed by something monumentally weirder by the time you publish it. And in this case, I was lucky enough to have said weirdness dovetail quite nicely with the topic at hand. Now, you might have caught the story about the increase in the price of shares in companies such as GameStop and AMC, and an equally remarkable run-up has occurred in the price of Bitcoin, which has broken the record held in the bubble of 2017. And what's different this time is that institutional investors have gotten in on the game, and there are very public conversations about it being a replacement for the dollar, as the global reserve currency. So to explore the possibility of this and what it would mean for America, I invited the data monkey on to discuss. And while we take forever to get there, we did manage to weave McGriddles into the storyline. So it's really a win-win. I'll be back at the end with final thoughts. I try my best to keep the content if not current at least evergreen at least it will not be uh, refuted by some other event right and I record these anywhere from one to four weeks ahead of time so you and I typically meet the week before it comes out right it, you know and we typically do our recording, we do, yeah right? so it's, we so with all the pre-planning
1: and execution that we we go through to get these together yeah yeah uh, <laughs> you, you can understand how yeah. uh, the immense task that turns out to be
0: yeah. Oh, absolutely. And so, and so in 2020, and now in 2021, that has proven an impossible task because if I recorded something, you know, these episodes come out Thursday at 2 a.m. Right? If I recorded something and released it Thursday at like 1 a.m., something would happen mm-hmm. between that point and the release time. Like so. Yeah. You know, in in this specific case. You know, you you record an episode Sunday, and then Tuesday there's a man in a buffalo headdress carrying a spear sitting in the Senate, Senate presidency. <laughs> yeah, right. Like so you can't you can't plan for these. And so right now, I'm gonna throw this out. You know, right now, today, the biggest story I think out there is how the fury of a thousand Minecraft servers has been focused on Melbourne Capital. In the form of uh, of GameStop and of GameS of the run up of the yes, price of GameStop, yes. Which, if you have any comments, I'm happy to entertain so, them. But.
1: right, uh, well, I, yeah. Do I have any comments? Um, yeah, let's let's talk about this. Uh, there's only so much I can probably get into on it because I have to be mindful of not sort of talking too, in too much detail. I just think it's yeah. it's interesting to me that we're seeing a level of retail or individual participation in the stock market that we haven't seen since probably the dot-com era of 20 years ago. And as history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme, I think it's compelling to see what the new technologies available to an individual investor how that's manifesting in the current and new uh, level of interest. By it. so, for example, when the dot com, you know, bubble or explosion or whatever you want to call it, uh, sort of took place, the internet at that point was. I mean to for many people it was still like a dial up exercise. I mean there were still even in 1999 a lot of people were sort of, you know, logging into logging into the internet and waiting for a signal and be connected, you know. Oh yeah. Um and there were chat rooms and certainly back then there were uh, plenty of um, you know, big money stock Type of chat rooms that that were around that that were popularized um, certain investments, but uh, now we've we've put that on um, a, a much uh, faster dissemination um, periodicity. Right, like we can now get to from your phone. You could you could tweet about a stock, post something about a stock, trade that stock. At almost zero cost through your, you know Schwab, Fidelity, Robinhood, whatever account, while you're standing in line waiting to go into the store, like three, yeah. right? So there's like this, this the and the ability through social media connection, and we're going to get to this. We're going to talk about um, cryptocurrencies. Uh, the this idea of like Metcalfe's law, like the power of, an, of a network increases with the number of nodes on the network. And so the fact that we've connected everyone now through this distributed um, information um, architecture where when we, th- the phenomenon of flash mobs happened after um, with the, uh, with, you know, with the onset of social media, and smartphones the idea of a flash mob really kind of was was very much post the uh the era of um the the dot-com boom yeah so now what we're what we're sort of seeing is the stock market equivalent of the spontaneous uh dance choreography at the mall you, yeah, you know?
0: yeah <laughs> like, like we, reenacting thriller so, right uh, <laughs> that, yeah it,
1: I mean, which you know, picking any individual company is almost as random as picking, uh, you know, with that's not for fundamental reasons, right? It's like almost like picking uh, just a random track off of an album that you're all going to coordinate the dance move to. Yeah. So your your dance move that you've coordinated to is is now, you know, pouring, you know, a, a cup into a thimble, right? It's going to just move. It's gonna. There's almost so much liquidity in any one stock, and certainly as, as if you all sort of, if you if you coordinate in a way, um, the activity uh, to all buy that stock, it will absolutely have a an impact on the price. It won't have much of an impact on the fundamentals of the business. So yeah. So the 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 longer term outcome, it's this almost becomes like for lack of a better, and this is not a comment specifically on on any one company, so I'll, I'll just caveat that because I don't want to, yeah. you can think conceptually, just talk about this in the abstract conceptually, that um, taking any good uh, sort of XYZ company um, that has a certain number of shares outstanding and then sort of through this mechanism coordinating to drive a price up is is almost a weirdly self-organizing ponzi scheme with no clear director um because there's once it because at some point there will be a moment when either that crowd moves on or the last or it's it has a sort of a a decreasing reverberating effect of attracting new people into it and when that happens it will then unwind um
0: because the
1: you know that company is most likely not in any or any company is most likely not in a position to buy back enough of their shares to support that price and the fundamental there aren't going to be other other uh, investors with different agendas may not step in to backstop that price so therefore um, the price will mean revert back to whatever the appropriate level is x this activity so I, i just it's, I think it's, like a, it's a strange emergent property of a complex
0: system. It's so interesting you say that because, again, we're, we're going to get to the topic of cryptocurrency in a bit, as the episode title indicates. However, I think what leads up to that conversation, too, is this thing I've observed, which is if you look at the last... 20 years or let's call it 25, 30 years, you know, since the dot-com boom, there have been a couple of big wealth transfers that have taken place. And the first one was the first dot-com boom. And that was where a lot of retail investors, a lot of folks who weren't normally trading stocks saw this opportunity to make a ton of money on, you know, underwear.com and, you know, anything with a dot com on it. Like there were companies that sold plumbing supplies that were changing their company name to dot com so their stock price would inflate, you know? And that all came tumbling down. And a lot of your average Joe investors lost money. They their money left their pockets and theoretically went into the pockets of some anonymous fat cat, which is usually what you know, how we kind of describe things in, in American economics, right? Um, well, and,
1: and to maybe to put a fine point on that, you know, specifically to the dot-com boom, you know, I think having been old enough to have gone through it and 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 observed it, and in fact, I, even working in the industry and watching it unfold, you know, it, it struck me at the time that, you know, we, the demand was really just for more, you know, paper claims associated with this phenomenon. So Wall Street obliged, right, and created more claims on these. um, And anyone who wants to read, uh, you you can go back and read the, there's a great book Michael Lewis wrote called The New New Thing, which I think encapsulates this really well, because it it really is focused on, um, you know, at the time, well, everyone, everyone knows WebMD now, but the reality is WebMD began as little more than a, a sketch on the back of a cocktail napkin in that period, right? It was it was very much a, a company that was, uh, let's issue stock in a company called WebMD, and then we'll figure out what we do.
0: Yeah. Oh, I I knew two people who made up a company. It was an online vitamin retailer. And they went to this conference, this is in the Bay Area, so this is back when like, you had to worry more about an apartment than a job because jobs were a plenty. It was finding a place to stay when you got the job that was a problem. And these people went into this ca- gathering of VCs and entrepreneurs and walked out with a stack of business cards as thick as a Bible. Uh, and they didn't even have a, they, they were just kind of you know joking around, like they didn't really have a business. but. I, I think the interesting thing is, so you have that moment where the retail investor uh, pumps a lot of their money or loses a lot of money in that dot-com boom. We have a recession. Um, then the next big wealth transfer is the whole housing bubble. Because of course, after that period of time uh, was when the uh, was when we saw the buildup to the mortgage crisis. Mm-hmm. And so again, you had this whole, if the dot-com boom was a uh, a fake economy with fake wealth built from fake companies, uh, the entire period of the, the whole Bush administration, you know, from 01 to 09, was uh, fake wealth created on fake housing values from fake mortgages. Brings in butter. Yeah, bingo, bingo. And buttered so guns. then you again, mm. yeah, plenty of guns. guns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. And so, so then we have this period of time where you know, again, people now they've lost their disposable income in the dot-com boom. They've now lost their house in the housing crash. And now, meanwhile, if if you all had just been kind of sitting at bars with us for that decade, we would have been bitching about these bubbles as they were occurring. But, you know, you know, whatever, that's not with, that notwithstanding. So we have that we have that housing bubble that crashes and then there's this third wealth transfer that and and again you know that I'll kind of say takes the form of quantitative easing or takes the form of of immense amounts of uh money printing for lack of a better phrasing and again what you have is you have a situation where if your wealth uh, is in assets so if your wealth was in the stock market you know you did very well if you were a person out there who traded your time for money like a lot of Americans do, uh, you weren't doing so hot, you know, because again, the value of your labor was effectively decreasing as the value of your money was decreasing, you know, the value as that pie was getting chopped up into smaller and smaller bits. And so we reached this point today, which is interesting, because the one, the one upshot of the stock market to date has been most of the people who are at risk of losing money were people who could take it, you know, most of the people who are at risk of losing money were were folks who were either, you know, venture capitalists, people on Wall Street, uh, people who had founded companies that had gone public, made a ton of money. Yeah, right? I mean, what, this it is was, let's, was,
1: let's put some numbers to this. I mean, one one percent of the country owns fifty percent of the assets.
0: Yeah, and that was not, and and what that's that's obviously perverse in and of itself. The only. Silver lining to that cloud is the fact that the people who are going to lose their money in the next crash were going to be the people who own those fifty percent of the assets. So because the people at the at the uh, at the you know the the other ninety nine percent or whatever percent you want to say um, didn't really benefit so much from that, right? So the the economic shrinkage wouldn't have hurt them so bad. But you have Robinhood now, and now you have people just taking change from their sofa cushions and injecting it into the market. Um, and I, I feel like we're almost, it's almost like you, to your, to your original point, it's like .com 2.0 where now it's not the, what you're investing in. It's more how you can invest. Well, and
1: the, it, it's yeah. and not just the change between the cushions, but also, um, the check that may or may not have been sent to them in the pandemic yeah. because we've created a strange phenomenon, right? Like. Any government program, you know, however necessary or not necessary, but it, almost regardless, right? Like for if necessary, if it's done quickly and for maximum impact, it's probably not done efficiency efficiently, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I can I can raise an anecdote to to point this out. My retired parents received a stimulus check. Um, <laughs> they were they don't own a business they don't they don't they didn't close down a business they didn't lose their job because of covid right like yeah but they just randomly got sent a check they're on so they're they're on social security and receiving their checks like so so nothing about covid other than the personal restrictions right were affected them financially i mean as, yeah. aside from okay yes the the first like decline in the you know, value of assets, which then have rallied. Right. So, yes. So there's some turbulence in some of their kind of assets, I guess, but, but as far as their income, right. Month to month was not impacted in any way really by COVID and yet they were sent a check. So what do they do with it? Right. They're just going to put it in an account and then I guess do something with it. And if if anything, I'm going to, I hate to draw a line from one point, but, but I'm sure they're not the only one, right? Like there were a lot of um, people who have received checks that have not necessarily needed them. Like there's plenty of people yeah. who are not getting them who probably do need them, right? But because this is how this is the nature of doing something inefficiently. But there is going to be a certain amount of that that just ends up kind of going into savings and maybe even going toward you know buying some incremental asset, especially when you can't go out and spend it very easily. Like yeah. if I send my parents $1,200 and tell them, and then they go, great, we'll go out to dinner. And said, no, no, you can't go out to dinner. <laughs> and don't go to any stores. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, I guess they'll go to Amazon and spend it or they'll go elsewhere. Like, but they're not going to, um, you know, they, they've now limited their options for doing anything with it. So in a great sense, you're going to now put that into something like, you know, investments or source or, or, an, or a bank account or whatever.
0: Yeah. Now take
1: now add on to that fact that there may be people who have then gotten that and then they can't go out to sporting events for a while there. You couldn't really even for those who, who are interested in gambling on sport events, they, they can't couldn't even really do that for a while. Yeah. Uh and it's a it's an interesting cocktail that's
0: got shaken up here. It's and and so that gets us to the to the meat in the seg McMuffin. Actually, there's an egg in the egg McMuffin. There's meat bad analogy. Me at too. any rate, yeah, there's meat. Okay, great. So there's a meat. There's some meat in there. But if um, we're gonna
1: go that route, can we go the McGriddle? Because that is way better oh, than the... Uh,
0: without I mean, a doubt. I'm, okay, I'm the not meat. gonna
1: say that, that the egg McMuffin isn't good, uh, and I don't yes. want to, you know, and and this is not to uh, to to try to court uh, endorsement or uh, disparagement by uh, the McDonald's corporation. Uh, I find you know if you're gonna go that route and you're gonna it, the McGriddle really is uh, top of the line. I would
0: agree. If, I mean, it's at the at that point, it's like what's the difference between smoking one cigarette and smoking two? You know, it's kind of like, eh. So yeah, okay. So we've 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 bitten through the the syrupy goodness that is the dot com bubble and the housing bubble, and now we arrive at that meat there, which is, um. In the midst of all this, and kind of like, totally overshadowed by the GameStop nonsense, has been this Bitcoin bubble. And oh, you presume it's a bubble, right? From the bubble, Bitcoin. Okay. Let's yeah, just yeah, call yeah. it Bitcoin. We'll we'll do it because because to be honest, I, I we'll get into a bit why I don't necessarily think it's a it's 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 a bubble in the GameStop sense at least. And um, w- one of the things that's really kind of formed a lot about how I'm viewing the the current era as it plays out is this, this um, letter or this, 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 this book published by Ray Dalio, which was published online. Um, This principles book. uh, It's I read, so I read principles, which is really good. It was the changing world order and he put it out on LinkedIn. You can get it online. I think he sells it as a book as well. Although I don't think it's coming out till March. Ray Dalio's whole thesis is that over the course of history, you have had countries that have emerged as uh, economic powers and effectively carried a reserve currency or have have risen to the status of carrying the world's reserve currency. And he documents China. He documents uh, 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 the British Empire and he documents the Netherlands and kind of... very well in in a very good fashion. I was doing like
1: the Italian lira during the, the Florentine banking. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't, he
0: didn't, he didn't mention that, but basically what he said is he said, you have these periods of time where uh, these, these powers arise and begin to get in status. And at some point their currency gains world reserve status or reserve currency status. And typically at that point in time, is when those countries also go on this uh, or or engage in this pattern of, uh, of debt spending and of unsustainable and which eventually becomes unsustainable. And so he, again, he outlines it with uh, the British pound. He outlines it with the Dutch Gilder and he sort of writes the case for how this applies to the United States. And now if you look at, you know, 1945, right. Bretton Woods agreement. uh, One of the, Rules established or, or or one of the principles established to the Bretton Woods Agreement was that the dollar would effectively be the reserve currency for the time being pegged to the value of gold. And that was where the entire post-World War II economic order was founded. The U.S. represented 50% of GDP at the time. We engaged in a lot of habits that reflected a country that was 50% of GDP. Now, as time goes on uh, and as other countries start to build up industrial capacities, start to become... Uh, you know, larger uh, economies, the U.S.'s share starts to shrink, but our spending doesn't, and uh, you get to the point in the '70s where you know Nixon takes the dollar and unpegs it from gold. So he lets the current, he lets the U.S. dollar float. The thing he doesn't get credit for, as well, which I'll which I'll add, is he didn't eliminate the peg of the U.S. dollar to a global asset. You know, so he took gold away, but he replaced it with oil. Because if you think about it, like that whole petrodollar agreement, which effectively says that you, which effectively got OPEC to agree to buy and sell oil in US dollars alone meant the entire world had to have some amount of us dollars in order and that's to the
1: that's the nature of why the dollar reserve currency um remains so central because 70 yep. percent of world trade gets settled in us dollars and then on top of that there's i think a last yep. count there's something like 11 trillion of non-financial dollar denominated debt outstanding This actually relates to that point, Dan. I want to just bring something up because there's a term that um, may or may not be familiar to some of the listeners, which is uh, like what's called the Triffin dilemma, um, Mm -hmm. which is this idea that you almost have to have a debt buildup in the reserve currency country because. Yes, because you have to run this sort of current account deficit in order for the other countries to have access to the debt to the to the currency, right? That's the dilemma: is that they need if you if you have the world needing to settle trade in dollars, they need dollars, which means they must import things to you or export things to you in order to import um, that currency back to to settle trades.
0: So we need yes exactly. So to so to to fill everyone in basically, the U.S. needs to have a an amount of debt that is equal to the amount of U.S. dollars that are being used to conduct foreign trade effectively. Um, and that and so we always so in this current arrangement, the U.S. always needs a certain amount of debt. Um, now, as that moves forward, you know we we have not passed a budget. I don't think people know this. We have not passed a budget in the twenty first century. So Congress has not passed a budget in the formal uh, sense it's uh, since in, in this entire century so far. so we're on 2021 right now. Um, n- nobody believes that the level of debt we're taking out is sustainable at this point in time. Nobody believes that there is going to be a, an amount of growth that is going to eat away at that debt. so there's there's eventually, um, going to be some reckoning. Point of order:
1: Does Paul now, Krugman maybe believe that we can continue to do this? I think.
0: Yeah. Oh, without a doubt, he believes. Yeah. Like, he, can you take somebody's Nobel Prize back? The, because, by the way, because like,
1: this debt is money we owe ourselves.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like, the i the
1: insanity I, of this idea, but uh, trust yeah. me, Paul.
0: I've told that story to myself. Yeah. Um, exactly. Before and and Visa can corroborate. Um, so, so we're at this point now again where where we know the current path is is not sustainable there they will need to be a course correction um at the same time over the last four years one of the principles of trumpism has been to kind of walk away from a lot of the collaborative agreements that we've uh that we've sort of or his, his his one of his things or one of the tenets of the american first america first policy has been to really walk away from a lot of the cooperative institutions that have uh that have really held kind of the u.s position in place and if you see the outcome of that what you have is you have situations like where even europe is looking for an alternative to the swift system of money transfer you know, the U S based.
1: You're raising an important point, right? Which is that there are, um, you know, Barry Eiken Green wrote a book years ago that again, the, the, um, the listeners could check out um, called the exorbitant privilege, which is a bit about this, yeah. um, this phenomenon and the, the, the raising, you're raising an interesting question, which is just, can the, can the U S as a, you know, economic military, Um, superpower walk away from these international agreements for, for, for positive or negative reasons, right? I'm not, I'm not assessing whether or not we should or not. That's not what I'm saying. It's just raising the question of whether you can disentangle yourself from these international agreements and yet implicitly retain a reserve currency status, or do these become I- intertwined? By being the reserve currency, you you are obligated in some way to be a part of all these international agreements and organizations. And if you start to un- and the idea that you might be able to unwind all of these and close yourself down, in even the point of like reshoring and bringing everything back, implicitly saying that you want to run a, somehow a current account neutral or current account deficit, starve the world of dollars, but then expect them to continue to use it as a currency such that it retains its um, reserve currency status is a fascinating question. I'm probably even not qualified to answer it, but we, it, I, it would seem problematic to me.
0: Yeah. And that's my point is that if you look at what happened during the Iran Ah, uh, nuclear agreement when Trump walked away from that. The reason that 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 the u s. can do that is because the u s. has so much sway over international money transfers. They have so much sway over how money gets moved around the world, right? China wants an alternative to that. The EU wants an alternative to that. And this is all fallout from uh, the the last four years. Add to that the fact that we've taken that surplus, and for the most part, a, a good chunk of that, has been used to fire missiles at other people. You know, a good chunk of that has been invested in in the military, which either sells weapons or engages in wars that uh, arguably we, we shouldn't be a part of. And so the question that the world has now is like, is this order, does this order make sense? You know, does it, does it really work for all of us to have this nation that is growing increasingly unstable be the linchpin of the global economy? and have so much control over what goes where. We are going to take a short break and we'll be back in a moment with the data monkey. I hope you're enjoying this episode and I wanted to take a short break to tell you how you can take action today to improve the state of democracy in America. Now. You listen to You Don't Have to Yell because you know the polarization in Washington has reached dangerous levels, quite literally, and this is a direct result of the way we run elections here. Our winner-take-all system of elections rewards candidates on the extremes of their party, it inoculates the two major parties from any real competition, and it discourages the compromise that makes government function. And if we reform the way we elect people to office and we open up our elections to more voices— We can get people in Congress more representative of the folks they serve and more responsive to them. And there are many ways to get there. Ranked choice voting is one of the most practical ways to make it happen. And in addition to my work with YDHTY, I'm also working with an organization called Rank the Vote. Their goal is to bring ranked choice voting to every state in the union. And they have organizations in almost every one And they need people like you committed to the cause of reforming democracy to get involved. Now, to learn more about ranked choice voting and how you can help, go to rankthevote.us. And if you have questions, feel free to hit me up on ydhty.com or on social media via the hashtag YDHTY. I hope you'll join me. And now, back to the episode. And that gets us to Bitcoin. So I feel like the listeners have taken a bite out of that McGriddle, right? And they, their teeth have been touching the sausage and we haven't let the bite in yet. So like they're salivating yeah. and they could taste that syrup. And they're like, just give I, us the goddamn I, I, I sausage. I need the spicy
1: salty to counteract this savory and, uh, and sweet part that I've had
0: so far. Yeah, here's, and after all that anticipation, here is the sausage. So, my the thing that interests me about bitcoin is that uh it is it, it, and and the thing that i think gives bitcoin some advantages over the us dollar is uh number one it's decentralized so there is no government that can have control over it in theory there is but it, it's hard um it is finite so you can't print more Bitcoin. There's a finite amount of Bitcoin out there, right? So once the final Bitcoin is mined, that's it, right? Uh, And number three, it allows for transfers of large amounts of money quicker and cheaper than any other system out there. And so that means, and that's very attractive for countries that might uh, exist outside Uh, the US economic system. So for example, when you look at a country like Iran, or you look at Russia, for example, right? Sanctions are much less effective when you have that. And so Bitcoin doesn't necessarily have to be the thing here. But my my big question, and the thing I kind of pose to you is, we'll take Bitcoin off the table, we'll create a new coin that has all the same properties, right? And I ask you this, is it feasible that this that the unwinding of all this results in some global, universal, decentralized currency? And number two, if that happens, what does the world look like? So, what does that mean for the yeah, U.S.? What does it mean for
1: the world? all right? So let me unpack it a little bit this way. Uh, I think I'm I I like your way of abstracting it because I don't want to render an opinion specifically on bitcoin positively or negatively certainly on the short run the medium term whatever right i mean especially given its demonstrated volatility <laughs> uh, i mean it could be at uh it could be at 100,000 or 2 by next week I, I have no idea right and it's it's absolutely demonstrated a, an excessive amount of volatility and and i mean we can even i can probably touch a little bit on some reasons why that might be true in general like I don't want to, again, I don't want to render an opinion on Bitcoin, but, but I like, I like your, your way of abstracting it a bit because we can talk about, because who knows? I mean, someone, um, could, you know, invent something similar, but maybe slightly different in a, um, in a you know, in a few years or next week or whenever, right? No one certainly anticipated Bitcoin when it was, when it was brought out, or I, I guess maybe some people had, but no one, um, obviously they didn't invent it. So, uh, so, I, I like the way you kind of framed it is to sort of think about what does it what is what does it do for you, right? What does something like this instrument do right? And to your point, um it it solves some some problems with the current system. It raises some other ones that governments may or may not be happy about. but um, you know, that decentralization, right? This idea that it's really all about, it's adopted by the marketplace that has determined it to be um, a currency. And that's in keeping with one, the history I think of currencies in general, Um, the best, most effective ones are ones that are generally just adopted by the marketplace overall. And for those who think it's just arbitrary and say, oh, you know, well, this is just a phantom asset and, you know, it needs you need to be focused on gold as a hard currency or whatever, pick your pick. Um, yeah. There's some there, there's some things that are, uh, there are some comparisons we can make between the two that I think implicitly would sort of tie them together. But but let's just say, okay, oh, yes, it sounds, it seems to be... Um, that, you know, why this coin or why this sort of phantom asset? Like, why would this be the thing that we use? And it seems arbitrary, but it's not. Um, Over time in history, you know, in different civilizations, I mean, we've had stones, we've had seashells, we've had like all kinds of things act as currency. Um, Because really what it's about is is about settlement right it's about you know because it's you know inefficient to to barter everything right i mean Mm -hmm. that's just the reality um yeah you if you if you dan you know have an apple orchard uh, but you need to buy a house like trading apples for a house is kind of a problem because you know building a house is going to be hundreds of thousands of apples and now you've transferred this problem to somebody who has an expertise in building houses Now is like, well, uh, I got a hundred thousand apples to sell and man, these are perishable. So like, what the heck am I supposed to do? So you're solving a coincidence of wants where you, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the thing you need, it happens to be the thing you have, right? Like that every transaction has to happen that way. It allows no scale, right? So in order to get Mm -hmm. any kind of scale and to, to, you know, allow sort of specialization in an economy, um, Mm -hmm. then you have to have some other medium of transaction to settle the, the, the the transaction. Right. Now what happens ends up happening though, is that, you know, if you, if you, if you all agree, if the marketplace agrees that we trade seashells, then, you know, you sell apples for X number of seashells, and then you pay the guy to build a house, um, in seashells. And that person who's building a house now has a lot of these seashells. Right. Mm Mm-hmm if it's very easy to make more seashells, there's not a lot of incentive for them to keep holding their value in those seashells. Right. Mm -hmm. So it comes down to the rate of increase in the supply of that currency um, or the the agreed upon medium of, of Mm transform and, and value storage. And so, a similarity between something like gold and something like Bitcoin is that they both have very, relatively very low rates of growth in the supply. Um, to your point, Bitcoin, as an example of this, has um, a, a theoretical limit or a very hard limit. Actually, I guess it's not even theoretical. It's, yeah. it's written into the code. It's a very specific limit. It will never have more than 21 million Bitcoin outstanding. And it just gets the degree of work it takes to, to mine those coins goes up as time goes on. And mm-hmm. it goes up with the value, right? So the, the more people who come online to try to mine it, the harder the work gets to do. Yeah. Um, so it gets sort of exponentially harder to mine the next coin um, the, related to the number of people. I probably just butchered that. So someone who understands uh, cryptocurrencies better will, will be groaning and and holding their head in their hand but but that's at least my, but you're my more conceptually less, right? that's yeah, the you're understanding right, right? Yeah. like it's it's a, it's a little like the you know um you know the the aristotelian idea of like the you know i can go halfway to the wall and then halfway again and then halfway again and then halfway again and theoretically you'd never actually get to the wall kind of thing right it just it gets yeah. it, it gets so hard to reach that 21 million like it's, we're almost like going to be asymptotically bounded such that you almost never actually mine the full amount. It just gets exponentially harder to get closer to the 21 yeah. million, um, the way that's, that's structured. Now, similarly, like gold is a finite thing, right? Or any metal. Like, I mean, now we may, and it's dictated to some degree by like our technology and the amount of energy available to mine it. But like, but there's a limited amount. Right. I mean, unless you're mining asteroids or doing some other fanciful thing, which people have talked about, sure, but like, okay, but what's the cost of that? I mean, like, (laughs) I mean, let's not even begin to go down that road. So, but so for all intents and purposes, let's just say this is the reason why something like gold or, or other metals have acted in this capacity is because it's very hard to control the supply. So I'm willing to take something like metal coins. Because the ability to to create more of them is 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 rate limited, right? Where once you've moved to reserve currencies that are entirely unpegged from almost anything, and they're controlled by central bank, um, you know, uh, supply, right? That they they dictate the amount. There is no rate limiter. Like you can produce as much of it as you want. I mean. That doesn't necessarily translate to the work it can do in the real world, but it does. But you can produce as many of as much of it as you absolutely care to create. So it becomes all yeah. very relative, right? The modern currency um, regime is all about relative um,
0: strength. And one thing I'd like to highlight too, because I know there might be some folks who are either crypto skeptics or, or pro-gold. Here's the th- the thing I'd like to state is that like, If you own gold, you probably own it in one of two forms, which is you own it in like an ETF or some investable asset that represents a certain amount of gold, or you actually have physical gold sitting in your house, right? And the whole idea is if everything goes crazy and the entire global economic system collapses, you'll have this gold, right? So post-apocalyptic United States, right? This collapse happens, right? You've got a gold bar in your desk, what in God's name are you going to do with that? Like, where are you going to buy eggs with the gold? Like, it just Wait, it's, you're, and, what and you're convers- highlighting
1: is in that, in that sort of Mad Max landscape, right? Uh, yeah. you have a coincidence and wealth problem again. I've got a gold, I've yeah. got a gold brick. You're like, well, I don't want a gold brick, Who I cares? want gasoline, bullets, or whiskey. Like,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you got to carry it, around. yeah, exactly. And you got to carry it around, it's heavy. And then conversely, like, again, what are you going to do? Are you going to like, go and like cash in your eat like cash in your etf it just makes zero sense oh, but interestingly so, to your point uh, i would say uh-huh. it's
1: easier in a way i could conceptually say it's easier under the current financial system architecture to transact in gold than it is to transact in bitcoin
0: very true very
1: true here's the question how do you pay for a pizza with gold here's how I pay for a pizza with gold. I have gold in my, uh, in my fidelity account or Schwab account, or I have platinum in my fidelity account or Schwab account through an ETF or whatever, right? Y- you then I have your, you have your fidelity card or your Schwab card or your whoever card and you pay for a pizza with it and they draw against, and they would instantly, even if you didn't want to immediately sell that, they would, they would be willing to lend you the money on the card against your asset in your account. So therefore I can, so in, for all intents and purposes, I paid for pizza with my gold, right? To cover that lending I did, I will just like sell uh, a share of your ETF or sell a share. So all things we equal, like you, you use that asset to do it versus yeah, try and use Bitcoin to buy a pizza, right? It's going to be very hard to do. Um, so as a medium of transaction, I think it's going to be incredibly difficult to, for that to ever have. a a real role but I don't think that's actually maybe the role it's meant to play in the long run
0: I I think first off in order for a again we'll, we'll just call it like monkey coin no we'll call it McGriddle coin for the sake no, of this yeah, exercise. no, I like it
1: because the more we, we abstract it, the more it's important because as
0: I say, we don't okay, so have, we've got Mick because point.
1: because someone could come up with something else, right? It's, it's like we're talking about more the attributes, not necessarily Bitcoin itself, but just whether there are attributes like here that are important.
0: And Bitcoin as well, too. Just my own. This is my own opinion based on what I've seen. It's got a lot of notoriety, but from a structural perspective, it's not advantageous. It takes a lot more energy to mine than a lot of other coins. There's a lot of downsides to Bitcoin, which is why I'd rather abstract it, like you said. So we're gonna have McGriddle Coin, right? Because everybody loves McGriddles. So McGriddle Coin, like Bitcoin, McGriddle Coin can be transferred very easily from wallet to wallet. Uh, it is mined. It is finite. All that good stuff.
1: And just a side note, Dan, uh, to the McDonald's Corporation, we will if when you introduce McGriddle Coin as the Bitcoin replacement and it takes over the world as the world's currency, we all we're asking is about for like a 05 percent royalty on the use of yeah. that. That's, I think that's fair. That's Carry it.
0: On. Okay, perfect. I think I think that's great. We'll talk to the clown. So so we've got McGriddle Coin out there now, and it's it, it, and 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 it presents the same properties as, as, as Bitcoin does. And we, I guess my, my big question is, is what triggers that migration away from the US dollar? Like what what is an event that ultimately makes folks decide, I, you know what, we're gonna migrate more of our transactions to this McGriddle coin. And we're not gonna hold so much in US dollars because there are just a lot of liabilities associated with it, so that could take. So, a couple of examples that could take the form of, you know, the U.S. voluntarily defaulting on its own obligations, which effectively is kind of, kind of happened when we didn't raise the debt the debt limit, however many years back. You know, um, there there are things. I guess I guess Mike and I'll I'll kind of phrase this more succinctly, like like with the in- instability in this country right now is there a point where that instability and that discord actually leads the world to say, you know what, maybe we shouldn't be putting all our eggs in the USD basket and maybe this McGriddle coin is a better way for us to resolve it's, international it's transactions? A, it's a
1: great question. And let me give you, um, it's almost never one precipitating event, right? Um, mm-hmm. And an example of this is going back to pre the uh, mortgage crisis, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I remember back in 2008, early 2008 I -hmm. asked uh, an economist I worked with said you know don't don't you see an issue with like a certain I was pointing to an amount of debt that's coming due at a certain time and uh he said well yeah but based on you know based on the structure of this I don't think it's a problem until I think he said like 2010 or whatever 2011 and my point to him at the time was but we agree there's a problem. And if you if, as soon as we agree there's a problem, it's not a problem in the future, it's a problem right now, mm-hmm. right? It's not, yeah. it's not when it hits, it's just the all recognition that it's an issue that is when, the pro- when it actually manifests, um, right? Mm-hmm. All we need to do is just look forward and see what, what's coming and people will automatically start to make changes toward it. So it sort of begs the question, like maybe, I mean, maybe that's some of that's happening already, right? Because you can, you kind of painted a a scenario of an explicit default, Um, but you know, you can default on something implicitly, right? Which is to say, come back to just to printing money, right? Like um, a country could issue debt uh, and then not pay it, right? Like it's, here's here, like I'm not, I just stop payment. On the, and I don't give the money back, that is an explicit default. A country, if it's issued it in its own currency, can also just implicitly default by just printing enough money to pay it back in ever less valuable currency. Which is, in some ways, you've reduced the, the, the purchasing power of the, of, the, of the funds you returned, in which case you've also kind of defaulted. It's just a different type of default, and I think what you're—that's sort of what you're getting at. I, I think, right? That um, if there's if at the margin, you know, each day that passes, one more person sort of draws the conclusion that they're going to be paid back and implicitly defaulted some in some way, um, defaulted on in some way. Then, then that incremental person makes a decision to look for an alternative, and if and if as as those inter, in, as those incremental nodes. Happen to join the same network as we said at the start of this thing. The McGriddle network power gets bigger and bigger and bigger.
0: Yeah, and so that that actually that answers or or partially answers what my follow up question to that w- w- was going to be, which is, you know, again this let's call it and let's call it an implicit default, which is what we're doing now. I mean, more or less, or or we we have uh, I think the U.S. government has demonstrated that it does not view the potential devaluation of the US dollar as a problem, or as today's problem, at least it's a lesser problem than the other problems we're facing. Um, And there's something that could rise up and take its place. And my strong opinion is that it's not another national currency. You know, my strong opinion is that we don't just Take that money and move it over, and all of a sudden the euro becomes the default, or the Swiss franc, or the uh yen, the Chinese. Uh, what you, uh, the what the you're Chinese painting yen, a picture of
1: is that it's a that it's a realization that the uh, you know pick your analogy the 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 Wizard of Oz the the Emperor No Clothes like that there's a a falling out with the neoclassical economic idea of, um, unpegged currencies generally. Yeah. Like, and that yeah. the fundamental soundness of money has to be sort of in an, in a kind of Austrian school, economic school way has to be revisited. And, um, and so, yeah, that we could unpack that on a whole separate episode. Cause I, I happen to think there's some truth to some of this. Um, now mm. I, now, the way uh the way that coin needs to be structured whether it's Bitcoin, McGriddle coin, any other thing. In my mind is that um and I'm gonna probably end up closing out this episode on a, a cliffhanger a little bit because we'll have to revisit yeah. the episode, but uh, revisit the topic, but um is that it doesn't yeah that the the growth rate of that currency shouldn't be zero. That's actually not optimal. Mm-hmm. Um, where I think sound money folks might think that zero is even better. Right. Yeah. And I I'd say, well, if that's the case, wouldn't even negative one be even better? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's probably such shrinking <laughs> like shrinking. Um, yeah. So, uh, but at the same time, you don't want your currency value to decrease. So, I I would say, in my mind, the mental experiment I've gone through is isn't isn't the the fault of sort of modern central banking. This idea of that they're trying to create enough money supply for a theoretical economic output level when they yeah. don't really have a great idea of what the the right output level is. And the only way they get to it is by just extrapolating historical levels. And historical levels are literally the lifetime of one of your or my grandparents. Like it's not the, it's not the 10,000 years of of modern human, like, you know, history. It is literally my, my grandmother's lifespan. Is is the entire thing that they're using to extrapolate far into the future about what will what is what is true about an economy.
0: And that is, I think, that gets us all the way back to the very beginning, which is our entire this entire structure was based on a reality in 1945. It was based on a reality where the US was 50% of GDP. It was based on a reality where there was this demographic. Uh, bubble of working age folks or folks entering into the workforce—the whole baby boom, right? The U.S. was one of the biggest producers of energy. It, yeah. It, yeah, and that is, and that those again, all those structures we built around it—the uh, you know the 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 high the national highway system in the United States, Medicare, Medicaid, the U.S. military—all of that's based on these assumptions that really became anachronistic you know, as we started to get further and further away from that 1945 period. And you look now, so we, just, I mean,
1: what is this trend of each of those inputs? Like, right. Like, I mean, the, to your point, like in 45, we had a baby boom. Now those people are retiring. Right? That's the, so you're getting this bookend of the other
0: side of it in a way. Exactly. And we're going to, and so I, I think kind of getting back to, you know, this whole idea of, of what threatens dollar dominance, and more importantly, what what follows after it, Um, it sounds to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, and if I'm not paraphrasing you correctly here, but it sounds to me that what has to happen is people all of a sudden have to agree that doing transactions in some other medium is preferable, and that uh and that that network has to grow to a large it or go alternatively on, sorry, even... i guess I just just a caveat
1: or alternatively we all need to agree on what the appropriate attributes are right that's i think the most like that whether you do that again in a decentralized way or we explicitly i'm just just spitballing right that explicitly we came up with some new you know uh limiting ideas about how much the dollar can grow, right? Like that we, that we created these rules around even like dollar growth yeah. or something. Right. So, so that we so they introduce a more of a sound money policy explicitly into, um, into some modern developed economies, currency, right? Like that, that can yeah. happen. I mean, um, again, I'm probably butchering this on a kind of historical, uh, economic historian would probably take issue but like i mean to some degree that's a little bit what switzerland had done for a long time yeah um no anyway
0: yeah well and if you if you if you take a look now in a lot of ways kind of getting back to what we talked about with GameStop or you know what we talked about with some of the other uh bubbles that were out there it's very i think what those represent is a faith that their money is going to work harder for them in these other assets than it is in the US dollar. You know, and um the the only difference is that we're is that it's hopping from asset to asset right now. So it went from dot com stocks to housing to um well, now I guess we could call it, you know, <laughs> meme stocks to cryptocurrency. That there's there is there is this assumption again we'll call it an implicit assumption there's an implicit assumption that the that that their store of wealth that the thing that they get handed to them for their labor on a bi-weekly basis or however you're paid is no longer structurally sound or or is no longer may or may
1: not prove to be a, a sound uh store of value
0: the most sensible alternative, from from all I can see, is um, is some agreed upon global currency, and what that is, let's hope it's a McGriddle coin. You know, I think, but but I would agree with you there, Mike. I think I think the the audience is going to have to get a bonus McGriddle. Yeah, I think I think we're going to have to do a bonus McGriddle for everyone <laughs> on the subject. <laughs> So you came in, you bought one McGriddle.
1: Just be there, there, for, t- to be fair, there will no, be no actual McGriddles uh, distributed. No, <laughs>
0: we will be dispensing zero <laughs> McGriddles. We get bankrupted by McGriddle costs. However, uh, I think this warrants further further exploration. So, um, folks, yeah, prepare for another McGriddle. How and when we will release it will be announced at a time of my choosing. All right. Depends on the feedback to this one. <laughs> yeah. Audience, if you have any comments on what you'd like in your second McGriddle, let me know. Mm-hmm. Cheesy. And if you prefer an Egg McMuffin, we're happy to oblige too. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you did, please share it. And if you have not subscribed yet and would like to, this would be your prompt to do so. Now, the takeaway from this episode... The only time in recent history the United States has seen a downgrade in its credit rating is when Congress couldn't reach an agreement to raise the debt ceiling in 2011. The market literally doesn't care how much debt we've taken out. Partisan gridlock is the only thing that seems to concern them when it comes to our debt levels. To put that in perspective, U.S. Treasuries are rated AAA, but so were mortgage-backed securities prior to the financial crisis in 2008. So we can't necessarily breathe easy there. But what is important here is that partisanship has reached a point where the government can no longer make decisions. And that leaves America's status as a world leader and as the world reserve currency in doubt. And a change in either would mean a drastic reduction in the quality of life for everyone here. Now, the data monkey and I are working... On a time to get you that bonus McGriddle. But in the meantime, you can check out our episodes from January 2020 for additional context as we spent the whole month discussing the national debt. As always, editorial advisor is Chief McGriddle Handler, Adam the Adman Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in North Carolina, in America's South by the big Gino, Jason Putney. Music Last but not least, courtesy of Queller Tack, all the rest, courtesy of me, Dan Sally. Until the next, boobah.